Turn with me in your Bibles again to Esther chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we were from last time. Same passage, we're going to read it again. Different perspective this time. There's just a lot there, and I didn't want us to miss some of it. So we're going to read uh, beginning in verse 19 and continue on until the end of chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hold, to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charged the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took a signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that uh, this morning as we again submit ourselves to your word, as we look to your word for the wisdom from heaven, as we look to your word for hope, 
Uh, in this life, we pray that uh, Christ would be seen clearly. We pray that your hand of providence would be considered very carefully and that we would see that indeed you rule over all the events of men. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Since I was first forced to read George Orwell's ominous novel, 1984, in high school, I have been fascinated by post-apocalyptic dystopian literature of all kinds. Apparently, they have been writing this type of literature since the 1800s. It went by a number of different titles, but it's always sort of played on the fears of man. You know, the type of novel that portrays a very bleak and evil future full of death and war, oppression, revolution, and then counter-revolution. It's a common theme. Uh, most youth literature today has some aspect of dystopian future involved. Now, why in the world would your pastor want to read such things? Good question. I think it's because normally I read Christian theology all the time, and I'm always considering the utopian paradise that is still yet to come when Christ returns to earth. So there are times in which I want to see how the world thinks and what it is that they're looking forward to, what it is that they're willing to fight for, and what it is that they're afraid of, because we all have our fears, right? In a dystopian fiction, you learn something about what non-Christian readers think of as the ideal world. You learn something of, of what it is that, that, that causes them to, uh, to be afraid, as I said. So it's interesting, though. It, it could be a number of different things that someone can be afraid of. It could be something as simple as book censorship. It could be some sort of environmental catastrophe, or it could be something like a Christian theocracy in which some dictator is forcing God's law upon all the people of the, the United States of America. It's, uh, it's funny, but it's, it seems to be a legitimate fear by a number of anti-Christian cultural leaders today. Some really believe that in the near future, somehow, that Christianity is going to sort of take over in the marketplace and ridicule anyone who believes in anything other than, than the God of the Scriptures. Of course, uh, the purpose of dystopian literature is to sort of exaggerate what could happen so that to play off the fears of each one of us in that regard. Um, but but the, the, the point is that to, to, to make us consider what would happen if good people do nothing, right, in that sense. But if, you, if you've seen in, in the news lately, it's strange how often the, what's on the written page in these novels it seems like people are really taking these things much more seriously than they ought. When you think of, uh, if you've are at all familiar with the the Handmaid's Tale, um, if you've seen all those women that are dressed in those long ro red robes and those big white bonnets, and they're afraid that if for some reason Roe v. Wade is overturned, that somehow a Christian dictator is going to come to the throne in this country and force all women to stay home and have sixteen kids against their will. I mean, literally, that's sort of what's being proposed. Uh, that's, that's literally what some people believe. Now, you and I both know that's not going to happen, but strangely enough, these things do happen on a small scale in certain cult groups, if you will. If you're familiar at all with the FLDS, um, one of the Mormon groups, uh, literally there were a number of underage girls that were forced to marry old men and have a bunch of kids by them and, and were sort of brainwashed into that. Uh, those things do happen, but as you and I both know, these are outlier groups. They're not a part of the mainstream whatsoever. It's not something that you should really be concerned about happening in a worldwide scale. Nevertheless, when they think of Christianity, that's what they think about. Stuff like that. 
Uh, so you can see why they might be afraid of it, if you will. Of course, both sides of the political spectrum, both left as well as right, have their fears. Uh, and, and, and for good reason. Uh, we all know that at any moment you can have some feckless leader or downright villainous leader who takes us in a direction we don't want to go, whether it's ultra-right or ultra-left. There's got to be someone who has that ability to uh, transform our culture in a very short period of time. If there's any danger of a new regime arising, I think most of us would think it would come from the ultra-left, but again, the point doesn't matter in both cases. Both sides realize that there is a conspiracy at work, if you will, behind the scenes that's constantly at work trying to bring some sort of evil plan to unfold. And both sides are right. What? (laughs) Both sides are right. There is some reality to this. There really is a conspiracy going on. Yes, I'm a conspiracy theorist. I'm admitting it. But not in the way that you might think. Um, Since the Garden of Eden, I think there has been an ongoing conspiracy afoot by both the earthly rulers as well as the spiritual powers of darkness at work in the heavenly realms. We don't always see it. We don't feel it. In fact, we choose to ignore it as much as we can on a regular basis until finally we are sort of hit over the head with evil again in some form or fashion, whether it's through some school shooting or whether it's through some uh, new plague or through some war or through some other evil uh, demonstration of some, some kind. But if you follow the grand narrative in Scripture, if you think about it, there are only four chapters in the whole Bible in which anyone is living in a utopian paradise. The first two chapters in the Garden of Eden and then the last two chapters when Christ's king, kingdom comes to earth. Outside of that, we're sort of living in this wasteland in which evil men can come to the throne and cause all sorts of havoc. It does happen. And so, every year, there's some sort of spiritual warfare that's going on behind the scenes. And we see evidence of that in so many different ways. There's fights all the time. I mean, you wonder why people are at each other's throats. Uh, we, we pretended to be nicer in ages past, but now we just let it all out and say exactly what we think and how we feel, and this is how we work today. But from the very beginning, this has been the, the desire of the devil to overthrow the reign of God. But that's, that's the M.O. Of, of Satan from the very beginning, the, the idea of revolution, overthrowing uh, the laws of God, and, and, and giving this empty promise that it that. If you follow him instead of following the Lord, you can do what you want. And you can be happy and you can live a a good life. That's sort of been the ongoing promise. But the problem is Satan's fight is not merely against God and his reign. It's immediately also against his son Jesus. Because if you remember, Jesus died on the cross purposely to redeem men and women from lawlessness. And to make them again someone who who submits to the laws of God. That's the very purpose of why Jesus dies on the cross. Not just to give you a ticket to heaven, but to actually transform you into this holy person who wants to live for God. So you can see why Satan would also be against Jesus. But it's interesting, there's a very um, uh, dark passage in Revelation chapter 12 of, of the woman who's about to give birth. Do you remember this passage? And the dragon is waiting for the son to be born uh, so that he can devour the child as soon as he comes to earth. And of course, we, we know this is supposed to represent 
uh, Satan looking to kill Christ even in Bethlehem at the time of his birth. But, but then we see instead what happens is God snatches him from the devil's clutches and eventually takes him to heaven and sits him at his right hand on his throne. And so what happens afterwards is described in the same chapter in Revelation. We now see that the dragon is going after the rest of the children of this woman. So in other words, going after the rest of the church of God who are the lawful ones, the ones who are seeking to follow uh, uh, the rule and the reign of Christ. It says, for the rest of the time, this is meant to encapsulate all of the history of man, the rest of this time we see that the, the devil is, is going off to fight against Christ and his church. Now you probably didn't think about it this morning when you got dressed up to come here that you probably didn't think about it uh, the rest of the week when you were getting ready for work, but every single morning that you wake up, you are in enemy territory. Every single moment that you think or do anything, uh, you have an enemy at work who has declared you to be public enemy number one the very moment that you profess faith in Jesus Christ. Or if you're even born into a family that seeks to call upon the name of the Lord. The very moment that you're associated in any way with God, His laws, and with Christ, you have entered into a, a war. And we don't often remember that. And it doesn't matter, even if you're a good citizen in this country, even if you've tried not to cause waves, even if you tried to hide your faith in so many ways, and yet the minute that you raise your head and say, hmm, I think I actually agree with God on this. That's when you become the enemy. That's when you become a real threat. Not only to Satan's kingdom, but to the God of this age. And that's exactly what's happening in our text this morning. Mordecai raises his head when everyone else is bowing. And because he raises his head, immediately he not only experiences the fury of Haman, but he also experiences the fury of the devil himself. It doesn't matter that he was a law-abiding citizen. It doesn't matter that he had saved the king's life not long before. He now is a threat. Now, it doesn't state that directly in the text, but if you look at the big picture of, of the Bible, that's, that's what's seen again and again, is the, the animosity between the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So this is just another battle in that ongoing war. It's not just a difference of opinion between two men. It really is a battle between two kingdoms between the sons of God and the sons of the devil. And again, it looks as if the sons of the devil have all the power. But that's a part of the conspiracy. It's a lie. It's not true. They really don't have any power. They think they do. They may currently be sitting in the seat of authority, but do they really have that authority? They currently might seem like they have all the clout, all the treasure, all the resources. But the one thing they don't have is God on their side. How can they win? How can they stand against those whom God stands up for? When they hear of the latest conspiracy, when God hears of their latest plans, at least six times in Scripture, it says simply, God laughs at their little plans, their little schemes, because it's going to amount to nothing. And yet we get so fearful of what, what will happen next. 
contrary to their great claims of authority over our country and over other parts of the world, the Lord has already granted all authority in heaven and on earth unto Jesus Christ. It's all his. He already owns it all. Doesn't matter what they say. It's already owned by Christ. Doesn't matter how much wealth they supposedly have. The earth is the Lord's in all that it contains. All the treasure, all the gold, all the silver, even the Bitcoin. He's got it. He's got it. There's nothing that they can outbid God in. They're not going to outspend Him. In the same way with all the clout and all the influence in the world that they think that they have. They forget, and sometimes we forget, that in an instant, God can move the heart of a king like a river of water. In an instant, He can cause all of His enemies to be so confused that they turn their swords on themselves. Or in an instant, He can turn His enemy into His friend. How can you deal with such a power? How can you deal with such a God? There's no, there's no contest here. But we, at times, forget that. We forget what God can do. And so, our enemies seem like they have an edge over us in that sense, but they have no idea what they're getting into when they attack God and His church. They have no idea. It cannot succeed. So in our passage this morning in chapter 3, verse 7, after Haman has determined to kill every Jew in the Persian Empire, in other words, every Jew on the face of the earth, he orders that lots be cast to determine the most auspicious day and month for this to happen, right? Because he's, he's looking to some sort of power, something to, uh, to determine that this ought to be the day that I'll, I'll have my success. Of course, what Haman doesn't know is Proverbs 16, verse 33. There it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Already he's fighting against a power that he does not understand. Notice in verse 7, that it was the first month of the year, the month of Nisan, in which Haman cast his lots. But the propitious day selected by Lot was not until the 13th day of the 12th month. So in other words, he kept trying for a day and a month, and every time he tried it, it got farther and farther away. It kept getting pushed farther and farther away until it's almost a year away now. Uh, you can imagine that Haman wanted to carry out his plan immediately. He's full of fury. He wants to wipe out the entire Jewish race. And yet, he relies upon the lots, and the Lord makes the lot much unauspicious for his scheme. In the meantime, Haman heads to the palace to convince his good drinking buddy, King Ahasuerus, to go along and to make this fatal decree. Now, we're not told all the details, but we know that uh, from history, from Herodotus, that uh, basically King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, he's, he's a dictator, he's crazy, but he's also a pushover. It's not hard to change his mind. And Haman waits until the king is heavily under the influence of alcohol and makes his proposal. Again, Proverbs 31, verse 4 and 5, we're told it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all those that are afflicted. Haman knows the weakness of the king and uses it against him. It's interesting, uh, in the news, 
you know, as you read through these different things, depending on which perspective you read from. Of course, the, the, the news that on the right-hand side has constantly been about Hunter Biden's laptop. It's all been about Hunter Biden's laptop. And I didn't even know what was on the laptop, and I didn't care. But nevertheless, I had to find out what it was now. So, so now I understand that, you know, it's all these files that he's sharing with his friends, sort of mocking his dad because he can get his dad to do whatever he wants. Of course, he's on crack cocaine the whole time he's sharing this, but he's basically saying, I can make my dad go for any policy that I want him to. And you're thinking, really, could that really happen? Then on the, on the other side, when you think of uh, George W. Bush, the left is, is also seen his as um, uh, Dick Cheney being able to move him in any way he wanted to. And we got into the war in Iraq because of what Dick Cheney wanted in that sense. In both cases, you have, again, the fears of both sides wondering, can this really happen? Well, I'll tell you the truth, it can and it does. Every time we think of our presidents, every time we think of those in authority, we very rarely think about those that are their counselors. But it's their counselors that give them either the wisdom from heaven or the counsel from the pit of hell. And, and we see it again and again on both sides. Both are easily manipulated, and that's exactly what happens. In fact, it makes me think of the, if you remember, the proconsul on the island of Cyprus when the Apostle Paul first went there to preach the gospel. Do you remember he had a counselor, an advisor there who was a magician? And every time Paul tried to tell him something about the gospel, this man was standing in the way, either contradicting him or hindering him from hearing what was being said. Until finally the Apostle Paul looks at him directly at this counselor, and he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking for someone to lead him by the hand. And immediately the proconsul believed the gospel. We're facing this all the time with leaders in various countries around the world. It's not just those men that are in power, but the counselors that are moving them in one way or another we have to be praying for as well notice in verse 8 how haman very similarly seeks to turn the heart of the king against the lord and his people he's spinning his conversation from the very beginning that's really nothing that he's saying is true constantly full of lies he says there's certain people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom their laws their customs they're different from those of every other people in other words they don't, they're not law-abiding people. They, they go about their own way. But notice he never mentions who they are, nor does he mention what their customs or their laws are. He purposely is hiding their identity. And just in case the king actually knows one of them and, and objects to the plan, so instead Haman builds up this straw man of what these people are like, and they're nothing of the sort. But we see that again and again in every culture. We see Christians are being portrayed as something horrible, just so they can be torn down. It's exactly what's happening. Moreover, he goes on verse 8. He says, they do not keep the king's law. So they're, they're against his kingdom, if you will. But again, Haman doesn't provide any examples of their lawlessness. No examples of their egregious acts. He says, it's not to the king's prophet to tolerate them. But that's not true either. For if it weren't for the Jews, if you think about it, the king would be wifeless and lifeless. No spouse and he would be dead if it weren't for Esther and it weren't for Mordecai. But again, that's the same argument that's used against Christianity today. They are an intolerant people. Therefore, you cannot tolerate them. They are a threat to the kingdom. 
So again and again, it's the same. It's the same arguments. The devil has not really improved in his arguments after thousands of years. It's the same thing. And yet, people don't know their history. Sounds great. Let's go with that. But before the king can ask him any questions, Haman uses another of the king's weaknesses against him. His love for money. Notice verse 9. He quickly says, If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they may be destroyed. I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into your treasury. Now, most of us aren't familiar with ancient silver talents and their worth today. 10,000 silver talents is about 375 tons of silver. Trying to figure that out uh, this week. It comes out to about $200 million today. This is an astronomical amount of money. And you think, well, Haman must have been really rich. No. Haman was going to steal from all the Jews that he was going to kill in order to pay off his debt to the king. Of course, the king didn't ask him where he's going to get the money from, didn't care. He had gotten the promise of more money, and so he was willing to do whatever. Haman had just given him 10,000 reasons to commit genocide. And he quickly jumped at the offer because, as Paul says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. All kinds. Ellen asked me uh, last night, I was watching a documentary. She's like, you're not going to use that in the sermon today. I was like, no. But then the ideas come into my head as I'm talking. I, I was watching a documentary about the Boy Scouts of America. Uh, just came out, I think, this week. It's a corporation that, that literally was sitting on billions of dollars. Billions. Not millions. Billions. They knew that there were pedophiles back in the 1920s. They have been hiding it since the 1920s. And it's even gotten worse since then. Worse and worse and worse. But because of the love of the money, the love of their own reputation, they refused to ever take anyone to court of law. 82,000 men have come forward explaining what has happened to them by the same men that went from one place to another place to another place no concept of morality. No concept of a conscience whatsoever. Billions of dollars. Follow the paper trail. It's always about the money. Money talks. The love of money causes many to turn away from the Lord and against His people. The temptation of Judas is just as real today as it was then. It happens again and again and again. So in verse 10, we see that without so much as even asking one question, he doesn't ask a single question. Who are these people? What have they done? Why are they so bad? doesn't ask anything. Immediately, he hands over his ring and says, do with them whatever you will. Just a, it's amazing to me that we have leaders like that. But we do. We always have. Both liberals and conservatives, they, they fear such things for good reason. The devil is real. He works through the weakness and foolishness of men. Again and again and again. It, it only takes a matter of days to turn the American dream into an American nightmare for half the citizens in this country because of these things. 
There's a sinister force at work in Haman's actions. Look in verse 13. If you read his words as he's communicating this edict that supposedly the king is going to write, it's, it's all his words. Does it not sound awfully like the devil himself? He says, here are your instructions. You're to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, and one day, and then he adds, and to plunder all their goods. Doesn't sound like the thief that Jesus spoke of that came only to steal, kill, and destroy. It's the same concept. Notice how quickly, though, the edict was signed and sent out. It's strange that it would be sent out so quickly because it couldn't happen for a year. What would be the point of sending it out so early? Verse 12, we're told the exact date. Sent out just a few days after he got it um, approved by the king. The 13th day of the first month of Nisan. So this is the first month of the year. The actual, it doesn't happen until the, the last month of the year. But why do it now? Why advertise what you're going to do, especially when you know it's such an evil scheme? Why would you allow this to get out so early? You know, usually our leaders are constantly trying to hide what they're doing, right? You don't find out about it until a year or two after it took place. He's advertising a, a year in advance. Here's what's going to happen. Well, it, it's because of the importance of that particular day. Most of us who are not Jews but grew up as Gentile homes, uh, the 13th day of Nisan doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But that's sort of like the 4th of July for the Jew because it was on the 13th day at 6 p.m. as the sun goes down, that's when you slaughter the Passover lamb. Their greatest feast, their greatest memory of freedom from their bondage in Egypt, their greatest understanding of the redemption of God, saving them from the angel of the Lord in the middle of the night, redeeming the firstborn of all Israel, Haman's now trying to turn their brightest day into the darkest day ever. And if you think about it, what's worse than actually persecuting and destroying a people? Making them know about it a year in advance and feeling the wrath of it every single day, fretting themselves to death that this is going to happen and there's nothing that they can do about it to change it. I mean, you think about it, what's worse than cancer? Knowing that you have cancer and then it's terminal, and there's nothing you can do about it. You sit there and you wait. That's what they're enduring at this moment. Meant to be a time of celebration. It's meant to be a time of thanksgiving. Haman rushes the decree on purpose so that he can ruin the greatest holiday that they had. An evil man. He not only wants to destroy them, he wants to dehumanize them humiliate them in every possible way. And it says, as a result of what happens, the whole city of Susa is immediately thrown into confusion. Whatever joy, whatever peace, whatever hope that he, they had anticipated, immediately it turns to gloom and fear and anxiety. The only thing worse, as I said, is knowing that you're going to have to face this day after day. And all of this is set in contrast to Haman and the king now sitting back with their feet up drinking more alcohol. They're feasting, they're celebrating while everyone else is in chaos and confusion. Again, it sort of reminds you a little bit about maybe some politicians you know, who say let's defund the police and then sit in their ivory towers as the streets burn and the businesses are destroyed. Both sides do it. I'm not just making fun of one side, but it's true. They make policies, they don't care. They don't, they don't care how it affects us. 
that's what's happening here. Violence is, is going to happen, and, and they're, they're, they're drinking about it. As I said last week, if we end the story right here in the midst of the chaos, it looks as if evil has triumphed. It looks as if the kingdom of Persia is soon going to be swimming in blood all across all the nations of the world. This would be the breaking news on Fox, CNN, and all the, the cable news networks. The media is great at covering bad news. They will tell you again and again, here's the bad news for today. Have you heard the bad news today? Here it is. Listen to it again. Listen to it ten times. I'll have you ten different people that will stand up and, and tell you their views of the bad news. And it's, guess what? It's still bad. That's how it works. One thing the news media networks will never tell you is how God's hand of providence is continuing to intervene in the evil works of men to bring about good for those who love Him. They will never tell you that. So please, don't just continue to watch the news all day long. It's just going to depress you. It's going to make you angry. It's going to make you bitter. And guess what? The news thrives off of your bitterness. That's how they make their money. They too are after money. Roots of all sorts of evil. The hard part is we know that there will always be some ebb and flow of evil and good throughout the world at different times before Christ's return. There will always be something bad to cover in the news, even if it's just a small amount of bad. Something of a plague, a famine, a scandal, a war. But again, we don't consider how God's working through these things. Even when it comes to the ongoing animosity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we sometimes forget. And this is an important truth. We forget in this animosity between these two sides, between us and our enemies, that this is actually God's doing. Do you remember that? Genesis chapter 3, God is the one who establishes the enmity between these two sides so that he can preserve a people for himself to make them holy. In fact, it's been said, I can't remember who said it, but uh, quote, God is continually seeking to pick a fight with the world in order to keep his people holy. You ever thought of it that way? Every single time that enemies are ganging up on the people of God, don't forget, God's behind this too. He's actually using this to keep his people holy. Think about it. Esther and Mordecai, and all, they're very happy living in a pagan empire. Very happy in their places of influence. Very happy sitting in peace. And then all of a sudden, God rustles up some animosity between the two seeds. We shouldn't be surprised that the world hates us because even that's part of God's sovereign plan. Of course, eventually in the book of Esther, we will see how God will save Israel from utter extinction. We will rejoice along with the people of God of, of that day. It's important to understand that what's at stake here. Keep in mind, I think we forget the book of Esther is not just about the people that are living in Susa. It's about all the people living all throughout the empire. So in other words, the whole world. And we can't forget that Zerubbabel and his sons are already in Israel. They've already gone back to rebuild the temple and, and, and those things in, in Israel. And it's through Zerubbabel and his sons that Jesus will be born. Haman wants to kill the Jews. And by doing so, the devil wants to kill the Son of God, you see. So God cannot allow this plan to stand. He is going to thwart it in every possible way, and you'll see soon see that, but it's absolutely essential that God overthrows this plan in order to keep his promise to Adam and to Noah and to Moses 
and to David that the Son of God will come and crush the serpent's head and sit on his throne forever. God is going to keep his promise. The, the irony of the matter is that God purposely saves Israel at this time in the book of Esther so that he can later condemn his own son in the same manner in order to grant true salvation that's eternal. Similar to Haman coming for King Ahasuerus, coming before him, accusing the Jews of lawlessness. This is what the devil does with us. You remember that passage in the book of Zechariah where the devil is accusing the high priest? So he purposely tempts us to sin so that he can accuse us, and then he's constantly accusing us and going before the king of kings to accuse us, saying that person is a rebel, they deserve to be destroyed. I want you to annihilate them, pass the edict, get it passed right now. And if you think about it, God's eternal wrath that, that ought to be displayed against us at any time because of our sin, because of our own rebellion, he doesn't do that. He purposely holds off on that because he has this plan of salvation in mind to send his own son to die on the cross to experience that wrath in our place. It's not because God's turning his eye away from evil in that sense, but because he has a plan to actually finally put an end to it through the cross and through the destruction of the world. Here's the wonder and the greatness of the gospel of Christ. Instead of just sending out a decree of destruction, which God has every right to do, instead of sending out the Pony Express like uh, the king of Persia does and sending out more crazy edicts and whatever that he does of bad news, God purposely sends out thousands and thousands and thousands of his disciples to tell them, about the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Think about it. It's the same thing. He, he literally has just sent messenger after messenger after messenger to say, yes, the wrath of God is coming, but I have made a way for the people of God to be saved. That's the message that's to go out. He purposely says, Jesus, Matthew 28, says, go out to all the nations and, and share this news that he's commanding them to go out with this decree of salvation that's given unto them. And so even as I'm standing here before you this morning, I am one of those messengers who has been told to tell you this particular message. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the message. There's a lot more to it, but that's the message in a nutshell. And that's what God has, has sent out man after man after man and then all the men and women of the church to do the same, to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus has already paid the blood money. He's already borne the wrath that we deserve. He gives us freedom from the oppression of the devil, gives us freedom from his condemnation, gives us freedom from that accusation again and again and again. Yes, we are rebels. Yes, we are sinners. But yes, Jesus has died for sinners. We just need to trust in his name. So I, standing before you as a herald, as a preacher of the gospel of good news, a preacher of the gospel of peace. I'm only one of many. But the reason why we continue to preach this message regardless of the threats that are made against us, just as they were made against those disciples, Peter and John, trying to get them to stop preaching the gospel, we preach it because it's the only good news in a world full of bad news. It is the only good news that there is only one name under heaven 
whereby all men must be saved. And that's the name of Jesus. So we do that, but that's not the best part of the news. Uh, that's not the best part of the story. Contrary to all the dystopian fears that we all have, the devil will never sit on his throne here on earth, ever. It will never happen. No matter how much you think it's going to happen, no matter how much you think evil is going to overwhelm, he has no power, he has no authority, he's already been defeated at the cross. His time is limited. He's got a bunch of bite, but it doesn't amount to anything. One day soon, the true king of this earth is going to return. He's going to usher in his kingdom, and he's going to usher in something more glorious than any utopian paradise that we can even fathom. It is coming. It's on its way. It is reality. The reality in which we live. It's the culmination of the story that's still unfolding. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth upon which we stand, upon which all God's people say, Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to know the truth. Help us to remember the end of the story. Help us to remember that our enemies are spiritual in nature, uh, that we're not to pick up the sword and to fight against men as so many in our day are trying to do. We pray, Father, that you would help us to know what we can do in a day in which darkness seems to have the advantage Father, give us wisdom for our days. Give us wisdom for this generation. Help us, Lord, to continue to raise up a, a godly generation for the next generations. Until Christ comes, Lord, help us to show the kingdom of God here on earth through the holiness, through the glory of your church, we pray in Jesus' name.